The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. This morning we're going to continue our reading through the 119th Psalm, starting at verse 33, going to verse 40. Teach me, O Lord, the ways of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Pray with me. Father God, I don't I, I don't know exactly why. There's a uh, there's a particular trembling in me this morning as I step in, into this pulpit. I'm not not sure what drives it. Father, but I can only assume that um Perhaps it's some indication that I recognize the weight of this word and how much danger there is that I could somehow come between your people and your word. So I pray that you would steady my legs in the moment that I could just stand firm in this place and sharpen my mind and guard my tongue. Pray for the hearts here in this room. I pray that you would prepare their hearts to uh, hear your word. You'd give them ears to hear and true spiritual ears, not not just ears to understand the words of a of a of a bumbling guy, but your word and, and the power of your spirit. That they would be changed by what they see of you here in your word this morning. So Father, we look forward with great anticipation to what you'll do through our time together. We hope not only for our good, but for your glory and all of it. And we trust that you will do this, Father, because we ask it in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 
after that prayer, I think it might be necessary for me to tell you, I'm not going to drop any bombs today, okay? There's nothing particularly difficult about this morning's passage in, in terms of intellectually. I, I'm, I doubt there's going to be anything I'm going to say this morning that's going to cause any one of you to jump up on the pew in and, and, and fury or, or, or to doubt where I came up with what I'm about to say to you. This, this isn't some new unfolding of some cosmic truth that's never, never occurred to you. As a matter of fact, my design for us this morning is very, very simple. As we work together through the first half of this third verse, we're in the third verse of Ephesians chapter 1. And as we work together through this first half of that third verse, my hope is that I can show to you what I believe to be the driver behind Paul's worship. Then having shown you what drives Paul to worship, my hope is that I can show you how this very same thing ought to drive your worship. And then we're going to come back and sing one more song. That's the pattern for us, isn't it? We sing three songs. We read the scripture. I offer a prayer. We come to the word. And then we sing one more song together. My hope is that perhaps our our last song today might be different somehow than the first three. Not in terms of tone or acoustics. Not in terms of anything outward at all but in terms of your heart and lifting up praise to the Lord. And and I believe that if we can grasp this, I believe if we can see the heart of worship, the thing that drives the apostle Paul to worship, I believe that it's going to bless you greatly. It's going to help you, not just in this room for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings, but in the whole of your life. I, I truly believe it's going to bless you. And so, My introduction is even longer than usual this week, and I want you to be able to settle in and and concentrate on what I'm saying without wondering at what point I'm going to call you to stand at attention in reverence to the reading of God's Word. And so we're going to go ahead and go to the text, and as I told you, our focus this morning is on the first half of that third verse, but we're going to read the entirety of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, all the way down through verse 14. Because as most of you probably already know, while this is five different sentences in our English translations, while it is 12 verses here in this text, you know in the original Greek, this is just one incredibly long sentence. So we need to take it all as one great thought. One argument that's presented to us by the Apostle Paul. 202 words in Greek. How's that for a sentence? Perhaps the greatest sentence ever penned by man, but it came from the mind of God. Now we, God willing, we're going to read this, these same 12 verses together for the next, I don't know how many months at the pace we're moving. I don't know how long it's going to take us to get through this entire section. My hope for you is that even if you don't devote yourself to memorizing it, that you'll memorize it. It's going to just wash over you, that you're going to know these truths by heart so that by the time I get to teach them, you'll already know what they mean. By the time we start to work through the difficult portions of this magnificent sentence, you'll have already heard and known and studied with the hope of understanding what these words mean. So with that, I ask you to stand to your feet, please. This is the inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. 
It's Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to, the, to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. All God's people said, amen, you may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? It's in your son's precious name we pray, amen. So as I said, our, our first goal in this, my, my hope, is that we would come to see what it is that drives the Apostle Paul to worship. Now, when we think about the Apostle Paul, if I were to go around this room and hand you each a piece of paper and say, just write down the first thing that comes into your mind when you hear the name of Paul, I'd imagine that for most of us, we'd immediately get to talking about his intellect the depth of his theology, the brilliance of his writing, the, the power of his arguments. Maybe your minds might go to the fact that Paul was perhaps the greatest of all missionaries and church planners in, in history. Maybe your mind would carry you to the reality that this man called Paul, he had an unparalleled willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel. But wherever it is that your mind goes, I would have to imagine it would take some time, perhaps none of us in this room, the first thing that would come to your mind when you think of the Apostle Paul would be that he is a man whose life was marked by a deep and abiding passion for the worship of God. If we did this in reverse, if I were to go around the room and I were to say, look, show me a character in Scripture, show me a person in God's redemptive history as revealed in his word that you think really shows the epitome. What does it mean to be a worshiper of God? For most of us, I'd imagine, it would be King David, wouldn't it? God used this man to record for us so much of the Hebrew hymn book that we call the Psalter. He was skilled, obviously, in playing the lyre. Think about this extravagant show of worship as he, as he danced before the ark as it came into the city of Jerusalem, so much so that his wife was embarrassed. It was an unkingly expression an ennoble expression, the way that he just gave himself over fully and completely to the worship of God, not just with his voice, but with the whole of his body. And so for many Christians, these are the prototypical images of worship. Big, artistic, extravagant, outwardly emotional demonstrations of man's love for God. For many Christians, this is the, demonst this is 
the very defining point, the defining image of what it means to be a worshiper. These are the sights and the sounds and just the feelings of the whole thing. But in reality, these things provide very little evidence as to whether our worship is true and pure and more than this, whether or not it's pleasing to God. Now, please don't misunderstand. King David's worship, it was absolutely pleasing to the Lord. God received it with great joy. We should model after him that, we should model ourselves after his sense of self-forgetfulness, his willingness to look like a fool if that's what it meant in order to properly honor the Lord. God got great joy from the worship that King David offered to him. I do not mean for one second to indicate to you that big, robust worship services are by their nature empty, that they're by their nature somehow vapid or fake. We can't make a statement like that any more than I can make you the statement, the promise that the man who sits alone in his truck and cries out to God, that that worship is necessarily pleasing to God. That's the point. It doesn't matter about the outward expressions. We cannot define worship as pleasing to God. We cannot guarantee that God receives our worship with great joy. We cannot, we cannot guarantee that the heart of worship is right based on any of the externals. The man who sits alone in his truck and sincerely cries out to God, knowing that no one else on all the earth other than he will hear his cries. Or the room filled with 12,000 worshipers led by a praise team with laser lights and a fog machine, I cannot guarantee that that thing is not pleasing to the Lord. They may both bring him great honor and joy. Or they may both completely miss the mark. That's the point. You see, I'm afraid that if we're not careful, we can get so consumed, we can get so wrapped up in the visual and the, the, the audible, the emotion of a worship service that we completely miss the heart of it all. And you must surely know by now that it is incredibly easy for man to manufacture the appearance of worship. We can whip up all the externals. If we're not careful, we can find ourselves being much like the people that Jesus spoke about, the people who honors him with their lips, but whose hearts are far from him. Church, I submit to you this morning that one of the surest signs, not the only sign by any means, but one of the surest signs that we have missed the mark, one of the surest signs that we have deceived ourselves, one of the surest signs that we're just going through the motions, paying lip service to God while our heart is far away from him, is when we see theology and worship as two completely separate things when we see them as completely unrelated. Let me explain to you what I mean. From time to time, I will hear people say things to me like, you know, I don't, just get, I don't get that much out of studying the Bible. I relate to God purely through music. Or I'll hear other people that say, why do you focus so much around here on doctrine? When we get to heaven, we're not gonna sit around and have Bible studies, are we? We're gonna spend all eternity singing praises to God. Now, I sympathize with those sentiments. I know where they come from. They come from a heart that recognizes that man's purpose is to glorify God. That the very reason for our existence is to bring glory to God. That the whole of the Christian mark, whole of the Christian life is to have been marked by worship. Joyfully expressing the reality of his infinite worth and value and beauty to all the world. And I certainly agree that there's great danger in a man if we're not careful. There's great danger to man becoming purely cerebral in his worship. I've known many men that devoted themselves to seeing and knowing and understanding God as he's revealed himself in the scriptures. They can recite for you large portions of the Bible. 
They can show, they can trace for you those magnificent threads of theology that run from Genesis all the way through Revelation. They're always there and ready with just a well-timed word of biblical counsel on their lips. And yet you find that the word has never penetrated their heart. You find that all their studies were meant for the externals. Never had the word truly transformed who they are. Their religion is purely intellectual. They did not allow what they knew about God to inform their praise and, and their worship. In the end, what happened was they had become great consumers of knowledge without becoming great lovers of God. I know and have known men like this. I know, as a matter of fact, that this is a great danger in my life if I'm not careful. As a man who loves to study God's word, as a man who has been given thanks to you people, it is God who has called me here. But you people have allowed me to spend my days. I don't have to go and have another job. I don't have to go work in some other place to provide for my family, that I'm able to come here and pray and spend my days studying the word of God. And I know there's great danger for me in this, that I can become just a knower of things and completely miss out on being a lover of God. There are men like that. But the reality is that there are many, many, many more who have erred to the opposite extreme. There's many men out there that because they become discouraged, disheartened, frustrated in their studies, or perhaps because no one has ever taught them what it looks like to come to the word of God seeking to see the face of God. Perhaps they don't even realize that that's a purpose in studying the word. Perhaps no one's ever told them. They've never come to the realization that when I come to this word, I'm not seeking knowledge, I'm seeking God. I'm seeking to see the face of the creator of the universe. And so because of that, they don't know what it means to come to this endless fount and drink deeply from the goodness of God. So as a result, they stop growing. Now they sincerely desire to honor God. They sincerely desire to be true worshipers of God. They're madly in love with whatever portion of God they do know. The problem is not dishonesty. The problem isn't even necessarily half-heartedness. It's that they don't see the necessity the connection between accurately thinking and speaking and praying about God and how that relates to their worship. And so they've cut themselves off. They've alienated themselves from the very thing that's meant to drive our worship. It is in a heart that is enraptured by this ever-growing and expanding and improving vision of God. So for many of these folks, worship becomes about nothing more than trying to manufacture emotions trying to elicit certain thoughts and affections rather than giving expression to something that's already completely consumed their soul. That's meant to be the heart of worship. My prayer every Saturday night with my girls. I try not to be too repetitive in my prayers with my children. I try to make clear to them I'm not just going through the motions, but it happens. There are these certain patterns that creep in, particularly at certain parts during the week. And so as Amanda and the girls and I, as we pray on Saturday night, Every single Saturday night that I'm aware of, one of my prayers, one of the things I ask God for in that time is, God, begin preparing our hearts now for worship. That we could hit these doors already so full of the love of God that no one's going to have to draw the praise out of us. No one's going to have to convince us to worship. They're going to have to hold us back. But if we don't see God as he is, if we don't know God as he has revealed himself, that's what we're stuck with. What did Jesus tell the Samaritan woman at the well? 
but his father desired a people who worshiped him in spirit and in truth. It's the head and the heart, the mind and the soul, the whole of a man. Seeing God as he is, seeing God as he's revealed himself in his word through his son and then being driven by that truth to cry out from deep within, God, I praise you. God, I praise you for who you are and I praise you for what you've done. This is true spiritual worship. It's found in a mind that sees and knows God as he has revealed himself and in a heart which rightly appraises what he has seen. Think about the man that stumbled across the treasure in the field. That man that was coming along and he stumbles upon a great treasure. Not only did this man see the treasure, not only did this man understand what the treasure was, he knew what it was worth. And knowing what this thing was worth, he gladly then gave everything he had to come to possession of it. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Yes, there are many, many men who have devoted themselves to hunting for treasure, to digging for treasure for seeking to know and see and understand the truths that God has revealed in here, and yet they do not rightly appraise it. They do not see it for the treasure that it is. They see other things in the world as worth more than this, and so it never enraptures their heart. It never draws their heart to God in worship and praise. They're just knowers of things. There are men like this, but again I say there are many, many, many more who have to convince themselves to fall madly in love with a God they've never seen. They've robbed themselves of the image of God. They've skipped the head and gone straight to the heart. I've compared it before to a first grader trying to sing love songs. They may hit all the right notes. They may strike all the right chords. They may sound just like a man, madly in love, but the reality is they have no idea what they're singing about. Worse than this, they have no idea who they're singing to. So we must see, we must recognize that if God is truly greater, if he is truly more beautiful and higher and majestic and worthy and glorious than anything else this world has to offer, anything else that our minds could even imagine, then the cure for weak worship is to see him more clearly. Not to convince our hearts to fall madly in love with the man-centered, watered-down version we've created of God. I tried to think of an analogy here, and I think I came up with one, but it, it falls apart pretty quickly. But I just imagine what life would be like if Amanda told me, you know, I like to think of you like this. I say, I, I want you to love me. And I'd like you to spend time with me, and it's going to require some effort. We're going to have to get somebody to watch the girls, and we're going to have to go on a date night, and we're going to, we're going to spend some time together. But I'd like, I'd like you to get to know me, to love me. And she said, well, no, I like to think of you like this, 6'2 with a head full of hair. That's the kind of guy I'm in love with. How many people do this with God? God says, I, I invite you to come and see me to know me, to spend time with me. By the way, do you ever wonder why God doesn't just give you the full revelation, a full and, 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 and uh, infinite understanding of who he is at the moment of your salvation? It's because there's value in the struggling. I want you to come and spend time with me to know me. Look, it, it's one thing for a man to just know things about me. It's another thing for her to get to know me. You see the difference? to learn about me as we walk through life together, as we cry together and struggle together and be broke together. You see, this is where the analogy falls short, though. 
because a Josh who is 6'3 with a head full of hair is better than the actual Josh. You see, if, if she had a husband that was 6'3 with a head full of hair that could sing on tune, her life might actually be better. But with God, there is no better. Do you understand? The things that we think in our mind about God, they aren't as good as the real thing. And so not only are we dishonoring God by saying, I worship you better when I imagine you like something you're not, we rob ourselves of the true and highest and greatest thing. Everyone's a loser. So we must never think that we can separate our worship from our theology, our doxology from our doctrine. It's the head and the mind. The driver of true worship, it's seeking to know God. It's seeing God as he is, cherishing, rightly appraising, rightly valuing what you see, and then spending the rest of your life pursuing that. Spending the rest of your life pursuing satisfaction in that, and in the pursuit of that satisfaction, giving voice to it. I told you before, I had a meal with Amanda recently, and she looked at me after, afterwards, and she said, um, you didn't enjoy that meal very much, did you? And I said, well, I didn't say anything ugly, or I didn't have a look on my face. Why do you say that? She says, because you're usually quite vocal when you enjoy something. I'm that guy that sits and tells everybody, this is the best steak I've ever had. Try this. Taste this. Right? I forced some crawfish on Missy yesterday. Taste this. I'm not happy unless you eat some of this and you confirm to me that it's delicious. This is worship. Our praise is completed as we give voice to it. Our own satisfaction grows as we give voice to it. We draw others into it and say, come and look at this. He's so much greater than I imagined. He's so much greater than anything I could conjure up in our mind. He's better than 6'3 with a full head of hair. He's God. I keep looking at Brian when I say 6'3 with a head full of hair. Nothing personal. A fabulous head of hair on that guy. This is worship. The head and the heart, the whole, the whole of who you are. We don't skip the head and try to go straight to the heart. It's fruitless. It's dishonoring to God and it robs ourselves. But we praise God when we come to that place. We come to that place of recognizing that our only hope, our only source of true spiritual worship comes in seeing him as he is. Then we get to understand what heaven's really all about. Because the imaginary opponent that I talked about earlier that says, look, why do we, why do we need to focus so much on, on Bible study? Why do we need to focus so much on doctrine? Heaven's not about this. Heaven's not about studying the Bible. Heaven's about singing songs of praise day and night, night and day. Dear friends, that's true because you're face-to-face -face with God. You're face-to-face -face with the word, the one who is truth, Jesus Christ our Lord. Not only is everything that you know about him all of a sudden no longer stained by sin, not only is everything that you know about him now all of a sudden absolutely perfect, but day after day you're learning more, more and more and more revealed day after day after day. This is heaven. Do you understand me? We'll spend all eternity growing in the knowledge, growing in the grasp, growing in our vision of who God is, spending all of our days seeking to comprehend the infinite breadth and length and height and depth of this God who so loves us. As C.S. Lewis says, further up and further in. I pray that's what you think of when you think of heaven. 
Do you realize that what, what happens in that place is that there's constantly this seeing and knowing and learning and enjoying more of God. You're always finding more just above the cloud line. It's one of these weird things with God. He's completely satisfying, and yet the more we taste, the more we want. But praise God, there's always more. We will spend 10,000 years climbing Mount Everest, seeking to, to know the heights of God, only to get to the top and realize we're only at the foothills. There's more above the cloud line. There's more there to know. There's more there to discover. There's more there to love. And by all of this, our worship grows. Do you understand? This is what keeps heaven from being boring. The reality is that the creature can never exhaustively comprehend his creator. That the finite mind and heart, yes, we continue to be finite beings. Our finite mind and our heart, it can never fully consume and comprehend the infinite God. And so for all eternity, we're always learning and growing and seeing more of God. Always room for our worship to grow and expand. This isn't some mindless droning on and on and on. If you see the picture in Isaiah 6 and you think, dear Lord, will you ever give us a new song to sing other than holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Dear friends, that word holy will have a new meaning day after day after day. Just a moment when you get to the point where you think, my heart's going to burst. I can't imagine a God any more holy than this. There's more. Do you understand? I pray this causes your, your heart to leap within your chest. This gives you excitement. That what we have in heaven is ages upon ages of true, fresh worship. Not this emotionally dependent cotton candy that, that tastes good on the lips but leaves you feeling empty. True, soul-satisfying worship for all eternity. This worship that originates with and lands upon God. It brings us true satisfaction. Romans 11. I have to think that Paul has something like this in mind when he says in Romans 11, 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. It never ends. It never gets boring. Again, I say, just when you get to the point where you think, I can't handle any more of this. I don't know that I can consume any more pleasure. I think my heart's going to burst. There's more. Sam Storms wrote this. There will never be so much as a millisecond in heaven when we are not exposed to yet another truth about God, another dimension of his majesty, an additional feature to his splendor and power and glory and strength. We may well run out of English words to describe God, but there is no measure of what is actually and eternally and endlessly true of him. I can see on your faces some of you are not fully convinced. But you recognize that if your mind could consume all there is to know about God, that would make you God? You don't become God in heaven. You're still the creature. In the resurrection, glorious, imperishable, honorable, true eternal life in the presence of God, seeing Jesus Christ as he is, being like he is, but always the creature, standing before the creator and always growing in your vision of him each day better than the last. I suppose that's my sermon. I suppose that's really the heart of what I hope to, to show you here. We're going to now go to the text and see if it matches up, see if that's what actually drives Paul's worship. But dear friends, I do hope that this is the heart of, you, of your desire. When you think about worship, I pray that you don't think about the tone of songs 
I don't think you, I pray that you don't think about some particular set list. Pray that you don't think about emotions or the feel in the room. Dear friends, I pray that you think about what you've seen of God and how what you've seen of him informs your heart, leads you to rightly appraise and cherish and delight in him, and then calls you to a point of just almost compulsion where you can do nothing other than to charge hard after him, knowing that I will not be satisfied until I give expression to this thing that's welling up within my heart, until I invite others to join me in this. Again, I say I think that's what we're going to see from the Apostle Paul. His seeing and cherishing of God, how his doxology, or excuse me, his doctrine informs his doxology. I think that that's why we see Apostle Paul throwing this in here. This isn't always his normal pattern. This blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To insert this right here before even offering a prayer. Before even thanking God for these people. But I I think perhaps what happened is Paul knows that he's about to launch in to one of the greatest doctrinal statements in the history of the world. He knows that he's about to introduce us to some things that are going to really stretch our mind beyond their limit. And he can't even wait till he gets to the end of the thing. He's right here at the beginning, and he's about to burst with excitement over all that he knows about God, all that he's seen about God, all that he cherishes about God, all that he's about to invite us to come and know about God, that he can't help himself. He just bursts forth into song. I think we see the heart of this in Paul's worship. I think we see it all throughout his ministry. I told you that people don't often think of Paul as a magnificent worshiper of God, but think of some of the places that you've seen Paul worship God. This man who suffered greatly for the sake of the kingdom. This worship that is grounded in God, therefore it's not wrapped up in experiences or emotions. It's not wrapped up in how you feel on that particular day. No matter the pain, no matter the suffering, it's the joy. It's the worship that comes when, in the middle of everything this world has to throw against you. And the enemy comes against you with guns ablazing. It's the ability to worship God because it's rooted in him. The God who does not change and the God who is higher than anything the enemy can take from you. We see this from Paul and his friend Silas when they're in jail in Philippi. They've been unjustly imprisoned for casting a demon out of a young girl. And we read in Acts 16, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Dear friends, I cannot promise you that if you sing praises to God in the midnight hour, that he's going to release you from your present physical suffering. We must not ever forget that while Paul was released from this prison, he knew that he was not long for this world. There would be prisons after this to come and eventually a death, a martyr's death for the sake of the kingdom of God. Paul's suffering was far from over and he knew this. And yet in the middle of that darkness, uh, darkest hour, in the middle of that midnight hour, he sang praises to God. He invited others within that jail to join him in praising God because Paul knew. Paul knew that in his suffering, he was seeing more of God. That's why he's able to say in Philippians 3.8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul knew that he was winning Paul recognized that as the things of this world were stripped away, I think about it like getting out of the city. What happens when you get out of the city and you look up into the sky for the first time? The stars were always there. They were always brilliant and beautiful. But when you no longer have the things of this world distracting you, casting false light upon the true light, all of a sudden you realize just how glorious and beautiful they really are. That's what Paul experienced in the suffering. As the things of this world, the lesser things, the dung, the rubbish, the trash of this world was stripped away from him, the lights, the artificial lights got dim and the true light shone all the brighter in his heart. You understand? This is how Paul could worship because Paul was winning. 
his vision, his understanding, his knowledge, his communion, his love for God was growing even in the middle of this, in this worship. That's, that's the only possible response to this is that you worship. You give voice to this. Know how I pray this for you. This is my prayer. We don't just look at Paul and go, well, isn't that great that Paul knows God so fully? Isn't that great that Paul has such a massive understanding of God that he's willing to worship in the middle of suffering? Good for him. He's truly a saint. But that you too would recognize that this is God's design for your life. That even when you cry out and you find that the chains don't fall off and the door doesn't swing wide open, that you'll find worship like this. That you'll come to recognize that the way you fight for true, sustainable, unrelentable, unshakable, unbreakable, unlosable joy is a fight to see the face of God. It's crying out to him in the middle of your suffering. God, I don't need you to bring an ease to the pain. I need you to show me your face. I need to see you as you are. And you know the beauty of this thing, dear friends? You don't have to wait till the suffering happens. You start storing it up today. You start putting it back today while the waters are calm, while your kids are reasonably well behaved, while you got a couple extra dollars in the bank, while your marriage is still together. You come to this word today and you say, God, I want to see your face now. I want to be able to cry out to the God that I've seen and known when the suffering comes. I don't want to wait for the suffering and then think, man, I wish I had known him. Does that mean that he won't show up? Does that mean he won't reveal himself in the suffering? Oh, dear friends, he will. But oh, what a joy to walk into that suffering, to see the suffering come marching down Main Street and know you've got nothing from me because I know God. So Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you hear the repetition of the word blessed there? Blessed, blessed, blessing. An adjective, a verb, a noun. Blessed be God who has blessed us with spiritual blessings. Now it's my hope, God willing, that we'll spend our time together next week looking at the second half of this third verse. We're going to ask, what does Paul mean when he says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? But even before we get to that point, even, even just a quick survey, just thinking back to the words we've already read, I think we get some indication of what Paul means. Not, not the fullest picture. We'll do that next week. But just a quick survey, I think, gives us some indication of what Paul means when he talks about us being blessed by God with every spiritual blessing. We have some indication of where does Paul's mind go. You might use the word blessed and you might use the word blessed. You might mean something altogether different. You might speak of blessings and you might speak of blessings and think of something altogether different. What does the Apostle Paul mean by spiritual blessings? What comes to his mind? What comes to his heart? What does he know that drives his worship about these spiritual blessings? I think we just get to the very next verse and we get some indication. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I love the way that in this letter, Paul begins in eternity past. I told you during our introductory sermon, it's like he pulls back the veil. He gives us a picture of what God was doing before you were. What God was doing before there was a world. What God was doing before the foundation of the world. We see God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit making a decree, a plan, a promise for the good of the saints for those who he chose, for those who he called. And as we move through this section of the letter, we see how he moves from the Father to the Son to the Holy Spirit and shows how they work in perfect unity. We see in verses four through six, he tells us about the activity of the Father. 
Verses 7 to 12, he points us towards the Son. Verses 13 and 14, he talks about the working of the Spirit. The whole of the Godhead working together to bless us. The saints, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, those who he has chosen before the foundation of the world. He makes this clear in verse 4. Chose us before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, predestined us for adoption. Verse 11, predestined us according to his sovereign will. But this God of the universe, this triune God, he has blessed us. See the past tense? Blessed us. This wasn't some decision he made on a whim. This wasn't an afterthought. This wasn't something he looked and thought, that looks like the kind of guy I could really bless. That before the foundation of the world, knowing that the world would be full with nothing but wicked sinners, evil rebels, he said, I have chosen this man. I have chosen this woman. I have chosen these people that I may bless them in this way with every spiritual blessing. Not a choice made within the timeline of history. Before there was time, before there was space, before there was matter, God sovereignly decreed that he would do this thing. And then we, we see as he moves from the work of God the Father, he moves to tell us about what Christ did as Christ stepped down into time to accomplish that which had been decreed. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Verse 10, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ. We see how this plan that began before the foundation of the world, this plan began before you were. This plan is now carried out through his son, coming to purchase redemption, coming to purchase our forgiveness, coming to unite us as one people united with the Father. The son coming to purchase everything that the Father had decreed, everything that had been free, uh, preordained before the foundation of the world, all the blessings that are designed for the saints, for those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, all of this coming in Christ. And all of this, before you were born, decreed and accomplished 2,000 years before your parents even thought about having you. And then the coming of the Holy Spirit, coming to apply all that had been decreed, all that had been accomplished, coming to apply it to our lives. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Do you see the perfect unity from eternity past through eternity future that God had never a moment at which God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were not working in perfect unity to bless his people, to bless this people he has chosen, predestined, foreordained to be the people that received all heavenly blessings. Not some blessings, not a portion of the blessings, every spiritual blessing. The richness of God's grace lavished upon us in spite of our sin and rebellion, all of it guaranteed by him. I think this is at least in part what Paul means when he thinks about God blessing us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He sees this pattern in the life of, of, of God's people. He sees this way in which God relates to his people, and it's always in this pattern. It's always moving from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. This is one of those fundamental things that once you see it in Scripture, you can't unsee it. That this is always the way in which God relates to us. All things from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Salvation from the Father, sending his Son, the Spirit coming to apply this to our life. Coming to call us, to draw us into faith in Jesus Christ. You think about your prayer life, how are you praying? You're to pray in the Spirit, in the name of the Son, to the Father. And everything with regards to God's relation to his redeemed people, it's always in this order. This is at least in part what Paul had when he talks about these spiritual blessings. And so we might ask then, if this is what comes into Paul's mind, if this is what comes into Paul's heart when he thinks about God blessing us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, what then does it mean for him to say that God be blessed? Is it the same thing? 
Or is he just pointing to the things that God has done? To say God be blessed. To say that God is the blessed one. Does this simply mean that he's the one that blesses us? Or is there some reciprocal nature to this? Is it when we say that God is the blessed one and he's the one who has blessed us, is there some intentionality within it or this, this concept within this that we then repay him? That we then do good for him? And if that's the answer, then what do you get to God who has everything? What lack does he have? What mercy does he need? What grace could we extend towards him? I think we find some, some help with this if we just look at this word blessed that's used. It's only used seven times in the New Testament, you may be surprised to know. And every single time we see this word blessed used like this, it is always used of God, never of man. In Romans 1 and Romans 9, we see that God is the one who is blessed forever. Amen. In 2 Corinthians 1 and 11 and 1 Peter 1, we see uh, him speaking of God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed, blessed forever. We also find him in, in the high priestly prayer. This is a slightly different word, but it carries the same connotation. We see Jesus in the high, uh, excuse me, Jesus talking to the high priest as they are they're coming and they're, they're, they're attacking him. They're, they're demanding answers from him. And they ask in Mark 14, 61, tell us, Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? So, so apparently this concept of, of blessedness, this one who is the blessed one, clearly this is so, so connected with God. It's so tied up with the very nature of God that he can be referred to as the one who is blessed. Something completely unique. Something that can't be said at all of men. Unlike any other person, any other thing in all the universe, God is the one who is blessed. So if we look at the Old Testament, I think we find a little bit more help. We can find this phrase, blessed be. We find it used over and over and over again in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalter. We find in Psalm 41, 13, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. Psalm 89, 52, we find blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen. Now the Hebrew word here is Baruch. It has the concept of a praise, of bowing down in honor, of worship, of thanksgiving, of honor given to one who has blessed you, of honor given to one who is worthy of honor and blessing and praise. This would appear to be why, more often than not, whenever we find this phrase used of God, it's used in connection with something that he has done. Certainly it's tied up in who he is, but more often than not, God has revealed who he is in the things he has done, in the way that he relates to his people, in the way he speaks to his people. So if we go back to the Psalms, we see over and over again that when God is spoken of as the blessed one, it's in connection with something that he's done. Psalm 28, 6, blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Psalm 66, 20, blessed be God because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. So the psalmist is offering this blessing to God. He is praising and thanking God for hearing his pleas for mercy, for remaining steadfast in his love. This theme is so incredibly common. I see you all writing down the reference to these so you can go look them back up. Basically, flop open the psalms and you'll find it over and over and over again. These songs of praise are blessed, are, are directed towards God, saying, blessed be God for all that he has done. Blessed be God for all that he is as revealed in all that he has done. This is the natural response of man. You see the goodness of God. You see the mercy and the kindness, the steadfast love, his refusal to abandon these people. And you cannot help but be lifted up with praise and to offer back to him this blessing. Blessed be God for all he has done. Now, this seems to be exactly the way. I left out one reference. I told you seven times it's used in the New Testament. I left out one of those references. 
We find it in, in the, um, the life of a man named Zechariah. Zechariah was John the Baptist's father. You remember that he had been struck mute by the angel Gabriel because he doubted the promises of God. Then finally, whenever the boy was born, Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, he proclaimed in Luke 1.68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. It's a pronouncement. You get, to, you get the tone of this as you work through this. You get to understanding this, this isn't just a well wish. Oftentimes, that's the way we use this. A brother sneezed during worship earlier, and I said, bless you. I've been told you're not supposed to say bless you because it goes back to the plague or something. I don't know. But whenever I say this, what am I doing? Hey, man, I wish the best for you. Please don't drop dead from that sneeze, I guess. I don't know. Whenever I, whenever I pay for something at the grocery store, I'll often look at the girl across the counter. I'll say, hey, God bless you. I don't, I'm wishing God's best for her. I'm hoping God's best for her. I'm praying God's best for her. But when we say, blessed be the God Almighty, we're not saying, I hope you have a good day. We're making a pronouncement, a declaration. We're honoring him for who he is. That's why we find in most of the Jewish prayers, over and over and over again, they begin with, blessed are you, O Lord. It's a statement. Lord, you are the blessed one. Now, the Greek word for this is eulogatos. It's where we get our word eulogy from. Do you hear the similarity there? What is a eulogy? You stand up at somebody's funeral and you say nice things about them. You break down the Greek word, you understand that eu means good. The prefix eu means good. Lego means to speak or to say. It means to say good. It means to speak good. It's to look to the God who is good and speak that truth. To give voice to the truth about his goodness. That's what Zechariah is doing. He's declaring to the world. That's what David's doing. He's declaring to the world. That's what we're called to do. To say to the world, God is good. He's looking at all that God has done and blessing us with every spiritual blessing. And he's declaring back to God and back to the world, he is good. That's why we see Paul, I believe, inserting it at this point. Because he sees the goodness of God. He sees the spiritual blessings of God flowing through us in Christ Jesus, or to us, excuse me, in Christ Jesus. So before he gives thanks to God for these people in Ephesus, before he offers up a prayer on behalf of the people, his heart is so filled with awe and wonder at all that God is, all the goodness of God. He's so overwhelmed. I keep telling us, I don't tell stories normally, and I'm just got, I'm full of them today. That's okay. I remember when we surprised our little girls with a dog. We had, we had to put down our one dog, and we're like, we're never getting another dog. And then we had went ahead and got them a dog. And they didn't know about this dog. And so we, we had planned it. We had sent the money off. We had picked it out. We didn't tell them anything. We tell them we're going out of town. I don't know what they thought we were going out of town for. I don't even remember. What, what did we tell y'all girls? Spankings and broccoli? I don't, I don't even know what they thought we were leaving for. They, we're going out of town. And one of the greatest joys of that trip wasn't going and getting the dog, for me, wasn't going and getting the dog and bringing it home. It was Amanda and I telling them about all the planning and all the work and all the secrets and all the mystery and all the everything that went into bringing us to this point. Right? It's almost like that's what Paul is doing. He's like, I can't wait to tell you how this happened. You saints, you don't even know all that God has done to bring you to faith. You don't even know the way that the Godhead is working so powerfully and radically for your good to bring you to salvation. It started before there was a world. <laughs> it's almost like he's thinking this through and he can't help himself. And he says, well, 
I know the blessing doesn't belong here, but I don't care. Blessed be you, God. And he's inviting the people to join with him, the people of Ephesus. Listen, you don't even know yet what I'm about to tell you. Trust me, bless him. Trust me, honor his name. Trust me, he's good. I say the same thing to some of you. We're going to work through this text, and it's going to hurt some of your heads. Some of you may be offended by some of what we say. Trust me, he's good. Bless him. So Paul just at this point, an opportune moment almost, he just breaks into song. There's, there's some, there's some uh, commentators, some theologians, they say that these words should never be read, they should only be sung. So Haley and I are going to get together this week. She's going to come up with a tune, and I'm just going to sing this text to you every single week from here till. I can see it though, right? Like This is a praise, man. I can just I can just I can just sense his excitement as he sends this letter from jail. He's back in jail, by the way. As he's back in jail and he's sending him and he's saying, Blessed be God. And I'm calling to you as a people who I've given my life to share this gospel with. Blessed be God. He's good. And what we see, I think, here, I, I, I think, I think what we see here in the life of Paul is the word of God doing the work for which it was created even as it's being penned. Are, are you understand what I'm saying to you? That even as, even as under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is speaking these words to his secretary or whoever's writing these words for him, that even as he is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is speaking the word of God. The word is doing the work on Paul even as he's expressing the word. Because what do we see Paul saying over and over and over again in this little section? Verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. It's doing the work. It's doing the work. It's overwhelming Paul. He says, I've got to praise the glorious grace of this God even as I tell you about the glorious grace of this God. Blessed be this God who has blessed us. Nobody can escape it, even the dude doing the writing. That's the way I feel. I, I am no Paul. Please don't hear me saying that I'm a Paul. Uh, but, but that's what happens to me when I'm sitting down. I'm, I'm not inspired by the Holy Spirit. I'm not writing to you the authoritative word of God. But there's plenty of times when I am at my keyboard and I'm writing this sermon, and it's just praise pouring out of me. And I get up here and I get to sing it. Uh, yeah, sing it. I get up here and I get to say it, and I'm just overwhelmed with You, you know this, right? I usually say something stupid or offensive during these times. I get so far away from what I should have said, I say something that should have, I said the quiet part out loud, and that's not always good. But I get so excited about who God is and what he's doing, and we see this in Paul. He's so wrapped up in what he knows about God. He said, I can't even say it without singing. Now let me show you, okay, now let me show you where your place is in all this, I think. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember what we looked at whenever we look back in the Old Testament and, and even, even in that kind of that, that in between the Old Testament and New Testament period with, with Zechariah, how was God named? He said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Now, when God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. And Moses asked, what is your name? What sh who shall I say has sent me? You remember what God says, I am who I am. 
God told Moses, tell the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you, Yahweh. This God who is so completely unique and other and unlike any portion of his creation. He says, I can only be named, I can only be identified, I can only be understood in relationship to myself because anything else is going to be a monumental step down. And yet, as you know, we unpacked this to some degree last week. As you know, this God who is outside and above and beyond and greater than any portion of his creation, he also chose to condescend, to step down into this creation, not only to reveal himself to sinful and rebellious men, but to promise to one man, to our father Abraham, this act of inconceivable grace. This God promised in Genesis 17, 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God would be God to Abraham. Not just Abraham, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to all of his offspring. God would be their God. This is why when God revealed himself to Moses, he didn't only say, I am Yahweh, I am who I am. He also said, I'm the God of your father. I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. And I'm the God of Jacob. Yahweh is who I am by nature. I am other. I am different. You can never use all of the human language to even come close to identifying the greatness and glory of who I am. But I'm also the God that's condescended and come to your father Abraham. Made a covenant with him and Isaac and Jacob and all of Israel. This infinitely good God of the universe. He has come and made himself known to men like this. Say, you want to know something about this God who is other? This God that you could never reach with a, a million years of searching? Look to the way he is related to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's how you'll know what I am like. That's, how you'll, that's my revelation of myself. I'm a God who is merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love that enters into covenant with sinful men, with busted pagan men like Abraham. So you must see then that there's no more glorious promise in all the world than this. Now listen, this, this promise, it would be greater, uh, better understood as it's revealed throughout redemptive history. As we see with each passing stage, each new administration of this covenant of grace, we begin to see more clearly what it meant when God would say this, that I will be your God. But you must not miss this. Right here at the very beginning, in his relationship with Abraham, in his coming to Abraham, he's making the most glorious promise in all the universe, I will be your God. Not a lifeless, helpless God like the God of the Canaanites. Not some false God that needs you to serve him that needs you to do something for him, the all-powerful God of the universe, he says, I will be God to you. Do you understand this promise? I, I, I don't think you do, because you're not singing yet. But you understand the promise that he's making here, that even in the middle of Israel's persistent sin, even as exile is about to come upon them, he promises not to forsake them, Isaiah 41, 8 to 10. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its furthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Beloved, this is what it means for God to be your God. Holy and completely and radically, God is for you. He had proven this time and time and time again, even in the midst of Israel's weakness. Even in the middle of their rebellion, he continued for the sake of his own glory, for his namesake, he continued to do them good, and he continued to remind them of the good that he had done. This was meant to be the basis for their walk in holiness. Think about the way that he ushered in. He introduced the Ten Commandments 
Exodus 20, he begins, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before we talk about the law, before we talk about what it means to walk as holy saints, let me remind you, I chose you. I redeemed you. I saved you. I am the Lord your God. Not just Yahweh who is other, Yahweh the Lord God who has stepped into time and redeemed you from slavery. You understanding? That this was the basis. This was the, this was the point from that point all the way through to Jesus coming, to the night of his betrayal. What was the thing that the people of God pointed back to to celebrate God's redemptive work? It was always the Passover. It was the work that God had done in freeing his people from slavery. He says, that's how you'll know who I am. And it's on that basis that you walk forward in holiness. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the connection. You see me as the Lord God who was up on high, who came to you, who condescended to do you good, who entered into covenant with your father Abraham. Therefore, walk in holiness. And we know how miserably the people failed generation after this generation didn't even make it into the promised land they all died in the wilderness and yet God continued to promise that there would always be a small faithful remnant he promised that there would be a true Israel true offspring of Abraham so that when we come to the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah and Ezekiel he continues to say therefore you will be my people and I will be your God again I said there's no greater promise in all the world than this you want to know what uh, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 is all about. It's about God being your God and you being his people. It's a whole lot more words than that, but it can be summed up in this. I'm your God. Radically, powerfully, inalterably, I am the God who works for your good. And he delights in it. You go to the passage in Jeremiah, we find that he delights with all his heart and with all his soul in doing good. He's not saying, well, I guess I gotta do good because I've attached my name to these people. He says it brings me joy to do good for these people. So we move forward hundreds of years later and we find the apostle Paul. He's writing to a Gentile audience. He's writing to men and women just like you and I. Men and women who he will say when we get to Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2 verse 12, that they are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He's talking to a people who can only see these promises from afar. They're not from the bloodline of Abraham. They're not from the nation of Israel. They can hear these promises. They can see these promises, and yet they're alienated, cut off from God by their Gentile birth. Do you understand? So how then can they find any hope in these promises? How then can they stand and say, the God of Israel is my God? The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he's my God and I'm his people and he loves to do me good. He delights in doing me good. Well, listen to what Paul says. He says, blessed be the God and Father, not of Abraham, not of Isaac, not of Jacob, not of Israel. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And with that, the door is kicked wide open. Now, does this mean that God is no longer the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Oh, no, dear friends, he is. You remember that the apostle Peter, whenever he stood up in Acts 3, he said that this one who has been blessed, this one who has been sent, this one who you has crucified, he is the son of the God of your father, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Israel. Jesus himself talked in Mark 12 when he was confronted by the Sadducees about the resurrection. What did he say? As for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses? In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but God of the living. He says, Abraham lives today because God is his God. 
God continues to be his God. Even as Jesus taught, even as Jesus came to fulfill all that God had promised, he says the promises to Abraham have not been revoked, they have not been annulled, they cannot be. And yet we know that the only way Abraham could live, the only way God could be the God of Abraham, the only way Abraham could have eternal life in the presence of God is if he was absolutely, perfectly righteous. That's a problem. Because neither Abraham, nor Isaac, nor Jacob, nor Moses, nor David, nor any man to come before had been perfectly holy and sinless and righteous. They all failed, and then comes Christ, true Israel. It it may sound strange to you to, to read Paul speaking of, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is God, how can he have a God? That's the point. That the very son of God would step down into humanity and take upon himself the fullness of what it means to be man. That he came to be true Israel, perfectly, sinlessly. Everything that God had called Israel to be, Jesus was. Fulfilling everything that God had commanded of his people, Israel. We see the parallels all throughout Jesus' life. His flight to Egypt as a baby. His return from Egypt. His baptism as a picture of the people going through the Red Sea. His 40 days in the desert being tempted by, the, uh, by Satan just as the people were 40 years in the wilderness. His word is the perfect prophet. His body is the temple of God. His death is the true Passover lamb. His ministry is the great high priest. His reign is the eternal king. Everything that Israel was meant to be, Jesus was. True Israel. The blessed son perfect in all of his ways, working in the righteousness that's required of the people of God. So the only way that Abraham could hold fast to these promises, the only way that Abraham could have assurance that he would be God's people and that God would be his God was based on this, that in faith he would be joined to true Israel. In faith he would be joined to the perfect son of God. In faith he would be joined to Christ Jesus. Not by birth, not by bloodline. Not by any act of the law, not by the circumcision, but in faith he would be joined to Christ Jesus. Therefore, he could declare, truly, you are my God and I am your people. That seems to be exactly what Paul lays out in the third chapter of his letter to Galatians. We're going to pick up some speed here, don't worry. Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. The promises, now they actually do belong to many people. Heaven is filled with many people, many true offspring of Abraham. But what he's saying here is that, what, that while heaven is filled with many saints, with many men and women and children who can count themselves as offspring of Israel, it is only in Christ Jesus that any of these promises may be ours. It's only Christ Jesus that has done what needs to be done to acquire any of these promises on behalf of these offspring. It can only be found in him. And so then our only hope The fact that we have a hope is not our bloodline in Abraham. It's not circumcision. It's not law. It's not nationality. It's not anything other than are we united to Christ? Because we look back to Abraham and we say, I have no hope of being united to that guy. I didn't pick my family. I didn't pick where I was born, when I was born. I didn't pick what church my family took me to. There's a whole lot about my life I look at and I go, man, the deck was really stacked against me for being God's people and him being my God. And yet what Paul does, he points back to Abraham, he says, hey, by the way, you want to know why God is the God of Abraham? See Christ Jesus. Because in faith, looking forward to Christ Jesus, he believed. 
He believed the promises of God and the righteousness of Christ was credited to Abraham. So you want to be a child of Abraham? Have faith like Abraham. Isn't that what Jesus said? You people keep saying, we're the sons of Abraham. We're the sons of Abraham. We're the sons of Abraham. I don't think that means what you think it means. To be a son of Abraham means to do the things that Abraham did. What did Abraham do? A bunch of sinning and faith in Christ. I would ask you to go home and read that third chapter of Galatians because he he says this explicitly. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Says that we are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, that this is it. I pray I haven't lost you. I pray that you recognize that this is it. We look at all that's driving Paul to worship, all the excitement that's welling up within his heart, everything that makes him just burst out in praise at this moment. He says, God is my God. Let me show you all the ways that he's been my God, and let me show you how he'll be your God. That in faith you're joined to Christ Jesus. That God who is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he is the God of Christ Jesus. That he has fulfilled everything that God demanded. Therefore, you need to be united to him in faith. I've got more, but I think that's it for today. So here is, I'm going to share with you my fear, okay? Haley always on Monday or Tuesday sends me the set list, and she says, is there any song, I don't even know, I think she thinks I know more than I know, is there any song that would fit better at some different spot with regards to your sermon? And so this was one of the only weeks I've reordered them, right, Haley? One of the only weeks I've reordered, reordered them, and I asked her to take a song from right before the sermon and move it to right after the sermon, and I'm afraid I messed up, and let me tell you why. There are certain songs in the life of a church that just get them going. There's those certain songs that for whatever reason, they just seem to strike right at the heart of who a congregation is, and, and the praise just comes. And, and I'm, this is one of those songs. It's the great I am. It's one of those songs that just, it just does it, okay? And I believe that we are, I, I've never been in a church that worship, I haven't been in a lot of churches, but watch a lot on TV. Um, I've never been in a church that worships like you people worship. It is sincere, it is deep, it is real. I'm not saying for one second that we sing this song and we don't mean it. I'm not saying that we bust out the smoke machines and the laser lights and we just become some kind of vapid, empty songbirds. I believe that you've got a heart of worship. My fear, though, is is that we come into this song. I just talked about how the heart of worship has got to be knowing and seeing and treasuring Christ above everything else in all the world. And I'm afraid that when I turn around and I give you a heavy hitter like this, you're going to lose sight of this. And so my prayer for you and my request of you in the moments to come is that as I pray, you begin preparing your hearts. Don't take your eyes off of Christ. Fix your eyes on him. As we sing this song, think about what you're saying. Don't black out. Think about the words that you are singing. Meditate on who Christ is. Meditate on what it means for God to be your God and meditate on what he should be to you. That is judge. You allow that gulf that exists to overwhelm you in worship. And then I would ask that you would carry that very same passion, that very same praise, that very same spirit of worship into doxology after it. That's it. Father God, we, um, we praise you so. Blessed be your name. 
oh Lord, God of Christ Jesus, that that we can, that not only are you the God and Father of Jesus Christ our Lord, but that because of our union with him, you are our God and our Father. That you delight in doing us good and we can look back and see all the good that you have done, all the good yet to come. So we praise you, Father. I ask that you prepare our hearts now that this wouldn't just be another song that we sing, that this would be a true act of spiritual worship, driven not by emotion, driven not by some experience within the room, but driven by the work of your spirit, bringing the truth of your word to bear down on our hearts. Glorify yourself now, God. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.